Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and letterboxed. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome back. This is the 10th episode of Watch with Jen, if you can believe it. That's crazy to me. That is, of course, not including the nine episodes so far that I've released of Watch With Jen and Friends. I've recorded a couple more conversations that are wonderful, and I cannot wait to upload those. And I have several more on the docket that I need to schedule that I cannot wait to take part in and share with you. I want to thank all of you for listening, those of you who've been with the show since the beginning. It's incredible. I thought when I started this that maybe two people would listen, if that. So the fact that there are so many of you that I'm receiving messages from and supportive tweets and that kind of thing just really blows my mind. And I want to say thank you so much. I also want to give a special shout out to those who are supporting Watch With Jen over on Patreon. And you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash filmintuition. I know money is really tight right now, and I completely understand if you're not able to support the pod that way. No worries. I just hope that you enjoy this and it brings you some happiness or at least takes your mind off things right now. But I do want to extend a special thank you to those who've been supporting and listening the show through Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. That is just so generous of you and I cannot underscore how much that means to me. So I look forward to hopefully delivering more excellent shows for you that you can enjoy. And if you're listening over on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Spotify, Google, wherever, please do every once in a while jump over to Patreon. That is where I post every episode first with a variety of links to films we discuss or old writing on the subject, links to the guest that I'm speaking with on Watch with Jen and Friends on Twitter and all of their work as well. So there's a whole host of information waiting for you over on Patreon for every single episode. So I do encourage you to check that out as well. Even if you're, you know, not supporting it or joining us, totally fine. Just for listeners, there is a lot there for you to check out while you're listening to me ramble about movies. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce you to this week's movies. It's always interesting when you watch a movie and you look up the writer-director to explore their other work and see what they've done, and you start to see these recurring themes that run through their entire filmographies. I think I discussed this when I was talking about Michael Winterbottom earlier in the series when I recommended The Wedding Guest, and I said it's sort of like playing film detective, essentially. Well, you don't have to look too hard to discover what it is that fascinates writer-director Billy Ray the most, and that is the duality of man or those who are hiding something major. The film that I would like to talk about today is his directorial debut, Shattered Glass, which came out in 2003 
and it is available right now on Cinemax or wherever you rent movies. It is based on a true story. Billy Ray adapted H.G. Bissinger's titular article, Shattered Glass, in Vanity Fair, about the fraudulent journalist Stephen Glass, who wrote for the New Republic from 1995 to 1998, and fabricated over half of his articles before he was eventually found out. He made up sources, websites, quotes, even entire stories, and the film chronicles the plight of his co-workers, his colleagues on the New Republic, as well as intrepid reporter from Forbes Digital, Adam Penningberg, played by Steve Zahn, who cries foul. He sees something wrong in one of his more outlandish stories that the 20-something reporter, played by Hayden Christensen, has published, and starts to dig and dig and doesn't really have to go that far before the House of Cards starts tumbling down. It's an incredible film that I thought was very timely right now for all of this talk about what has become a ridiculous battle cry buzzword by our foolish president, fake news, to discover that nothing hurts journalists more, the ones that are there every day and following the rules of the trade, quite like the betrayal of one of their own. It gives the entire profession a bad name. And this film shows that basically the people doing the work are doing the work. And it really illustrates just the level of a betrayal like this and how it means the most to his colleagues whose faces he's been lying to every day, and how it can harm the reputation of all of those above him, as well as the magazine itself, and again, the entire profession of journalism. I think having a recent discussion with Blake Howard on his podcast, All the President's Minutes, about the seminal film from Alan J. Pakula, All the President's Men, and discussing journalism movies kind of made my brain work overtime for the past few weeks thinking about journalism movies. And just out of the blue in the last week, I started to think about Chatter glass. Usually when I choose movies for this, I go through the various streaming services and just look for films that pop out at me. But this one was the exception to that rule. The film entered my mind and I started to look it up to see if it was available or if I was just going to have to recommend something you were going to have to straight up rent. And was glad to see that at least it's available on Cinemax, which I know is not the most popular streaming app, so I do apologize. But even if you have to spend a couple bucks on this, it is so worth it. Hayden Christensen, do not underestimate that actor. I know it's easy to do because of those god-awful Star Wars prequels that he was in. To steal a phrase from Jason Reitman, who described Twilight as a graveyard for acting, I kind of think that's what happened in those original prequel movies. Basically, nobody is that great in those. Even though they're not like the worst of the worst, they're still watchable. It's just not what you're going to put on when you want to see, you know, epic acting, let's just say. 
But Shattered Glass really offers a great showcase for what Hayden Christensen can do. Kind of like another movie he was in called Life as a House, which came out a couple years before Shattered Glass did. And if you watch these two films together, you kind of think, boy, you know, the film world let down Hayden Christensen because he has incredible talent. But the person who actually really steals this movie is one of my favorite independent actors, Peter Sarsgaard, who plays Charles Chuck Lane, who is the superior of Stephen Glass and was kind of suspicious of him. Chuck Lane was put into a very precarious position before he received his promotion the job had gone to the beloved editor Michael Kelly, played by Hank Azaria, who actually got fired for standing up for Stephen on one of his stories that was eventually, they discovered, was actually fabricated. Michael Kelly, of course, wound up at The New Yorker. So when Sarsgaard's Chuck Lane wound up stepping into his shoes, he was not nearly as beloved as Michael Kelly had been. And it's a very complicated role. It shows the politics of office life, no matter what job you're in, and the range of emotions that play out by Sarsgaard for the full course of the film, which is, interestingly enough, produced by Tom Cruise, earned Sarsgaard a number of award nominations that year. He was nominated for a Golden Globe, Independent Spirit Awards. He won a few from those critic circle groups. I think Boston was one of them. And the cast, in addition to, of course, Christensen and Sarsgaard and Azaria also includes as mentioned before, Steve Zahn, but also Chloe Sevigny, Melanie Linsky, and Rosario Dawson, just to name a few. It's a tremendous movie and definitely set the stage for Billy Ray on wanting to explore these complicated human beings who present one face to the world, but are really another in secret. He followed up Shattered Glass with another excellent film called Breach in 2007, which chronicled the FBI trader Robert Hansen, who sold secrets to Russia. And then he made the remake of one of my favorite foreign films, The Secret in Their Eyes. He then made a miniseries for Amazon F. Scott Fitzgerald's unfinished novel, The Last Haikun, which had been made in the 70s with Robert De Niro from director Elia Kazan. And right now he is working on a higher loyalty. He's adapting James Comey's book in miniseries form, writing and directing. So that should be interesting as well. But overall, I encourage you to start with his directorial debut, Shattered Glass. It is my personal favorite in his filmography, and I look forward to hearing what you have to say about that one. So enjoy. Recently, I've started getting into the habit of, especially on weekends, ending the day with a comedy movie. It's a great way, especially right now, to sort of laugh your troubles away for a few hours, and I highly recommend it. When I was looking over good comedies to recommend to you, I found one that's 
one of my personal favorites. It's dumb, but it is so, so funny. It came out 19 years ago, and it was a huge hit back then. But because it is now basically college age that was a person, I kind of thought, well, let's bring it back to your attention today. The film is Heartbreakers, which is now playing on Hulu and Netflix. Directed by David Merkin, who was a former Three's Company, New Heart, Simpsons writer. He directed one episode of The Simpsons, also Larry Sanders and other shows. He made his filmmaking debut in 1997 with Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, which I just love that movie as well, and then made this one, and then never made another film again as director. I don't know if he just didn't like that role and preferred writing, or was getting ready to retire, or what the reason was, but this was his last great send-off as a filmmaker. And it's quite a good legacy to leave in making so many people laugh. The film stars Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt as Max and Paige Connors, a mother-daughter con woman team who divide and conquer when they find a new wealthy male mark. Mom seduces him, ropes him into a quick marriage with the old line that she cannot have sex before the wedding because she's so religious. And then it's usually Paige's turn, the daughter, to be sort of the sexy young girl that he has in his eyeline. At the beginning of the movie, the mark is Ray Liotta, who just kills in this film. When people say the name Ray Liotta, you always think of his darker films. And I remember reading an article and it made me really angry as a film writer to see that this person just did like the bare minimum of research before he interviewed Ray Liotta. Cause he said something like, you only make gangster movies to Ray. And Ray said something like, I was in Muppets from Space. <laughs> and then he also talked about Heartbreakers. And he said, you should see Heartbreakers. I think you will like that one. It is really funny. And this film person, alleged film person, I don't know if you can really call this guy that, just had no idea. He didn't even like jump on the internet to do any cursory research. And so anyway, that made me mad on that level because it's like, oh, of course they give it to that guy, right? The article. But I wanted to stand by Ray here and say this is, I think, his funniest performance that I've seen. And of course, I mean, I love him in Muppets from Space, but, you know, I'm going to watch Heartbreakers the most because although I'm a Muppets person, I'm more like vintage Muppets. At the beginning of the movie, Sigourney marries Ray Liotta and pulls that old can't have sex before the wedding trick and then pretends to be so drunk on the wedding night that she like falls asleep before anything can happen. He goes into the workplace the next day to take care of something and sees Paige there and he's all amped up and lunges at Paige and starts something and of course that's when 
Sigourney enters the scene. So they have this very calculated divide and attack game that they like to play on men. And then, of course, Sigourney files for divorce and he's so humiliated and defeated that it's like, give her whatever she wants. And they take the money and run. Well, Paige has kind of had enough of this game. She's now getting old enough where she thinks she should be the primary on a con. And mom disagrees, of course. Sigourney is able to convince her through another con. I mean, these people are always conning one another. It's very, very funny. And the two women venture down to Palm Beach to look for their next mark. They find it in a tobacco baron played by Gene Hackman, who, just like Ray Liotta, is absolutely dynamite in this movie. He is so funny. Ray kind of plays sort of a macho stereotype guy, whereas Gene is just disgusting in this, like purposely. As a tobacco baron, he's always hack coughing and likes to encourage his ladies to smoke. I mean, the man is just, I mean, the man is just like reason 185 million not to start smoking. And it is a really great contrast of acting styles that just works very, very well. The film is very sunny. The cinematography is sort of picture postcard perfect of Palm Beach. The women are gorgeous, of course. And it's just a beautiful looking movie. It's perfect for summer. You get warm just watching them out in the Palm Beach area. It kind of reminds me of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, but it might be kind of cheapening both films to compare them apples and oranges or say like this is the female version of dirty rotten scoundrels because they are different enough but let's just say if you enjoyed one i think you will enjoy this one or if you maybe didn't enjoy dirty rotten scoundrels because of some of the misogyny sort of going through it a little bit i mean let's face it it's a fun movie but there's a little element there then i think you will get a kick out of this oddly enough Heartbreakers was written by three men, and because sexuality is their number one weapon, I think you can probably see the male screenwriting brain at work here. The writers of Heartbreakers were Robert Dunn, Paul Gway, and Stephen Mazur. Gway and Mazur had actually written another hilarious movie in the 90s called Liar Liar. Huge hit for Jim Carrey. One of my favorite Jim Carrey movies, I think my favorite, of course, would be Truman Show because that's just a masterpiece. But if you're going for just silly Jim Carrey comedy, Liar Liar is very sweet and very funny. Heartbreakers is augmented by a wonderful soundtrack. You get a Danny Elfman theme, which is called the Heartbreakers theme that is first introduced in a wonderful way early on when you discover that they are mother and daughter. It's a perfect time to play that theme and you're gonna see it revisited throughout the movie. There's also a terrific pop soundtrack, Beck's Tropicalia is used kind of around this time you would be hard-pressed to find a film that did not feature Beck's Tropicalia. It was sort of the new version of The Cranberries' Dreams. Man, you could not turn on a movie in the late 90s without hearing Dolores O'Riordan's Wail on the Dreams song just playing in the background. I mean, dude, they even used it in, like, Mission Impossible. 
So that song was overplayed. Tropicalia was overused as well, but now enough time's gone by where you're just really excited to hear it. Jason Lee and Sarah Silverman are also in the film. Jason Lee is very funny. I loved him in Mumford. Again, I'm like the one Mumford fan in the universe. It's a Kazdan picture he was great in. In this film, he plays a bartender that Paige meets and discovers first they sort of are at odds and then she discovers hey this guy has money and he's not that bad looking he's very nice and Paige decides to try to run a dual con so that complicates matters but the thing that complicates it the most is when Ray Liotta's character follows them down to Palm Beach and has no idea he's been conned at first and just tries to get Sigourney Weaver back because he fell in love with her when she was duping him. Once he's in on the joke, the joke gets even funnier. And I think you will agree. So be sure to queue up Heartbreaker so you can find it again on Hulu and Netflix. Maybe it's because I'm a Hitchcock fan, but there's something to be said about movies that feature characters meeting strangers on public transportation, some sort of vessel they cannot escape that just always works for me. I recommended Red Eye in an earlier episode and have another film to encourage all fellow Hitchcock fans to seek out. It is called Trans-Siberian. It came out in 2008 And you can find this movie basically wherever you want to look. It is on Prime, Roku, Voodoo, Tubi, Popcorn Flicks, and Pluto, among, I'm sure, many other apps with weird names that are tricky to pronounce, especially in quick succession. The movie was made by Brad Anderson, who is a terrific director. Now he's mainly doing television, but had a really interesting run of films there, starting in the late 90s and beyond. He also directed The Call, which is a movie I actually gave a shout out to last week when I was talking about The Guilty and encouraging everyone to see that. So The Call is probably his last really great movie or one that I can recommend here. But he first caught my attention in the late 90s with this Hope Davis romantic comedy called Next Stop Wonderland which is a wonderful film. One of my favorite movies of all time, and if you follow me on Twitter, this is going to be extremely familiar to you, is Happy Accidents. Whenever I meet somebody who actually like knows this movie without my having to put it in their hands or have them over to watch it or just recommend the hell out of it and annoy them until they watch it, they become like my instant new friend. Walter Chaw is actually somebody who you just heard in a recent episode of Watch With Jen and Friends. And when I was first getting to know him on Twitter, I mentioned happy accidents in some respect, as I am wont to do like over and over again. And he raved about it as well in a reply. And it was just like, okay, Walter, you're my new best friend of the day. Like, wow. So if you know happy accidents, you know, basically let's all get t-shirts and we're a new group of happy accidents groupies, I guess. Brad then made The Machinist with Christian Bale, 
which is an unsettling and outstanding movie that I still cannot imagine was safely made given how much weight Bale dropped for that film. It's just, it's a hard movie to watch, but it's very, very good. He also made Session 9, and then in 2008, he made Trans-Siberian. This film stars Woody Harrelson and Emily Mortimer as an American couple who travel to Beijing, China on like a church mission trip. He's a total locomotive nerd and his wife, Emily Mortimer, is a photographer, former wild child or bad girl who has now changed her ways thanks to like literally crashing into Woody Harrelson and then they bonded after an accident. So I guess you could say they had a happy accident. See, I'm just gonna keep tying it in over and over subliminally until you go seek out that movie. But anyway, back to Trans-Siberian. When they leave their church mission group, instead of flying directly home back to the States, they decide it will be fun to take the Trans-Siberian train trip from Beijing to Moscow, Russia, which in itself is interesting just from an outsider's perspective. You learn some interesting things, like China was worried that Russia was going to invade them. So they actually made their train tracks narrower. And so once the train travels far enough, they need to change the wheels and all of the gears or whatever it is, I don't speak train, in order to fit on the new wider Russian train tracks. So it was just a piece of extra security that China put in to keep them out. There's some symbolism there because just as they get off the train to do that, it's around the same time that Roy and Jesse, our two Americans, meet a very mysterious pair of fellow travelers who are going to share their bunk car. And these are Carlos and Abby. Carlos is a Spanish, you know, bedroom-eyed hottie, essentially, who I'm sure makes the hairs on the back of Jesse's neck stand up a little bit. She is intrigued by him right away. And there's a little bit of unease in the marriage of Roy and Jesse. Roy is always second-guessing her or telling her what to do. And I think in this new guy, Carlos, who definitely seems a little shady, it sort of calls to Jesse's past a little bit. So there's a slight attraction there when they first meet. But Carlos arrives with his girlfriend, Abby, the much younger Kate Mara. Kate is a fabulous actress, by the way. And this was before, of course, her turn on like House of Cards and her other film work. So she is stellar here. The two couples get to know one another. And as I think you do very quickly, sort of when you're thrown together and living in tight quarters, especially when they can speak the same language, you you want to bond with people like that really, really quickly to sort of give you some sense of home or familiarity. It's a deceptive sense of familiarity, though, because these are strangers. And you know the old adage, don't talk to strangers. At the same time all of this is going on, Ben Kingsley, who plays a Russian inspector, 
is hot on the trail of somebody who stabbed a guy in the back of the head and ripped off a bunch of drugs in that deal that went south that we see the aftermath of early on. How are the couples involved? Who is involved? We don't really know. An interesting element of Trans-Siberian is that perhaps the couple you think one thing about versus the other, uh, those preconceptions that you have might be off. So there's some interesting little surprises and twists there. It's a dark film, but it's a very good one. I think if you're going for like straight up thriller, you'd probably want even one or two more twists. But this is an interesting character-driven sort of psychological thriller that is all about what they let us know when. So information that gets conveyed to us and to the characters themselves, what they find out at certain times. So it's an interesting one. I'm being pretty vague here. I do apologize, but I think it's for the best. I reviewed this thing back in like probably 2008, 2009 when it was out on DVD and I had read some reviews ahead of time before I was even sent the, the film and found out some twists that I should not have known from a number of reviews that I came across including Roger Ebert and Stephen Holden's which both are terrific. Roger Ebert loved this movie. He gave it like three and a half out of four, if memory serves correctly. But you're going to want to wait to read those pieces until after you watch the movie. Just like it's another film that sort of makes me feel better about my decision to watch maybe the first 30 seconds of trailers only and then like eject or stop like get out of the trailer as fast as possible before they just spoil everything because this trailer gives away so much. So don't watch the trailer and be careful not to read too much about this movie before you check it out on any of those silly named apps that you have access to, because this is an interesting one and I think you'll dig it. Okay, first a confession before I announce our next film. I am not the biggest sushi eater. I'm not a big fish fan. I eat a little fish and call it good. But yeah, sushi is not on my list of favorite foods or something I'm really into. So I'm not an expert in any kind of sense or a huge fan, but I will say that I'm a big fan of this movie. East Side Sushi, which came out in 2014. It's a wonderful underdog sort of fish out of water, haha, see what I did there? No, I'm just kidding. Um, film that you can find on Voodoo, YouTube, Cinemax, Prime, Hoopla, Canopy, yet another movie you're going to find a lot of places when you start looking. It was written, directed, produced, and edited by a special effects man who made short documentary features. And this was his first feature-length movie, filmmaker Anthony Lucero. And this is his only film he has made so far. The movie is in English, Spanish, and Japanese. And it's a lovely, inspiring film about a single Mexican-American mother who lives with her young daughter and her widowed father in East Oakland, California. 
She works on her dad's fruit cart. And she also does prep work in Mexican taquerias and various small restaurants, that kind of thing. But after she gets robbed at the fruit cart, she decides that she just can't do that anymore and gets a job as a sous chef at the Japanese restaurant Osaka. She is naturally gifted as a cook and works on her chef skills all the time. Her chopping skills in particular are out of this world. While working for the restaurant Osaka, she becomes interested in creating her own sushi dishes in her spare time, sort of using some of the Mexican flavors in sushi and making some very intriguing combinations. She's got her heart set on entering a $20,000 winner-take-all first prize gets 20k contest called Champions of Sushi. And when Osaka's veteran sushi chef quits, she starts to help in the back and does more work behind the scenes for the chef Aki. And as she gets better and better, and there's sort of a, an attraction that develops between her and Aki, she wants to become a full sushi chef. The promotion comes with a better salary, gives her even more opportunities to learn as a chef, but she is prevented because not only is she Mexican, but she's also female. And the Japanese owner says that is just inauthentic and not what they want to present to customers. So she has a lot of pride and decides to walk away from that and bank everything on this Champions of Sushi contest. So again, you can say this is the underdog story because she's Mexican-American and jumping into Japanese food culture. It's also a little bit of a fish-out-of-water story. And it's also just sweet. I love that it centers on a woman. And it's a woman trying to do right by her family gently push back against stereotypes on both sides. It's a lovely movie. I've seen it I think two or three times. I remember really being charmed by it back when it was newly released. I might have gotten a screener of it. I don't recall how I first saw it. And then a few years later it played on Mubi and I took that opportunity to re-watch it again and I was so glad I did because it's a gem. I know that is an overused word and when people call things like an underrated gem, which is becoming a bit of a cliche in film writing. I sort of cringe a little bit because I know I've done it way too much or started out doing that a lot. But this film really is an underrated gem. And no, I'm not just being a cliche here. It really is one that is sort of the type of movie that makes me sad that film festivals aren't happening right now because that's basically where you would see it. This isn't going to get a huge theatrical run. It would probably maybe get released on VOD if, but because it has you know, and like an untested female actress in the lead, or because the filmmaker isn't a name, it might not even get any kind of attention or anything that it deserves. So this is the type of movie you would have probably seen at 
Well, here in Arizona, it would be the Phoenix Film Festival or the Scottsdale International Film Festival. Just a lovely cross-cultural movie that plays well across the generations. Diana Elizabeth Torres is wonderful as Juana. And boy, I hope I do not butcher this, but Yutaka Takayuchi is great as well as Aki. And even though he, I'm sure he's a very good special effects man, that is what Anthony Lucero is known for. I wish he would work on another feature because I think he has an interesting voice and some great stories to tell. Our final film this week is one that I am so passionate about that I've actually written about it twice so far. The first, when it was given a 2K restoration for Blu-ray on behalf of the Cohen Film Collection, and the second, when I chose it as one of my favorite film discoveries of 2018 for the site Rupert Pupkin Speaks. The movie is The Official Story, which came out in 1985, It won the Best Foreign Language Oscar for Argentina, and you can find it on the Criterion channel as well as Canopy right now. Wisely using a Douglas Sirkian style domestic mystery to gradually introduce international viewers to the horrors that took place during Argentina's dirty war, the official story centers on a history teacher played by Norma Aleandro, who won an award at the Cannes Film Festival for Best Actress for her performance. Aleandro's lead fears that her adopted five-year-old daughter, Gabby, might be the child of one of the tens of thousands of citizens who were disappeared following the military coup which installed a dictatorship in their country in 1976. She is a history teacher at a prestigious all-boys high school who, in an early scene, cautions her students not to believe anything that hasn't made it into the history books. Married to a powerful man with strong ties to the government, when one of Alejandro's best friends comes back into her life with the horrific account of being disappeared and tortured, the privileged upper-class mother of Gabby is forced to confront just what facts, and more importantly, which fictions the country is being told. Fearing that Gabby might be the child of someone who's been similarly disappeared and separated from her family by force, which in the Trump era takes on greater urgency, Alicia, played by Alejandro, begins to open her eyes to the world around her. Vowing to get to the bottom of the mystery, she must soon contend with the fact that the answers she finds have begun chipping away at the quote-unquote official story she's been told about Gabby's origins by the man who shares her life and her bed in the form of her husband Roberto, played by Hector Alterio. Knowing that it might be easy to overwhelm the audience with a film about the dirty war given its tremendous scope and the number of victims, the screenwriters director Lucas Puenzo and Aida Bortnik, who received an Oscar nomination for their passionate original screenplay, really helped get us involved into the story from such a personal account. And the movie does sort of seem like had it been made in the 50s, it might have been compared to one of the Cirques even back then. And it's a good way for us to sort of vicariously discover 
the horrors of war right along with Alicia. Starting to internally question and then face just how much she knows about how her husband makes his living. We do start to wonder why this has never occurred to this woman before because she is so educated particularly given the massive demonstrations on the street by the families of those who've been disappeared. However, it's only after the script makes it known how difficult it was for her to conceive a baby that we start to realize, especially given her obvious love for Gabby, just how much she doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize her family, how she's willing to lie to everyone, including herself, until it just becomes too hard to ignore. In its 1985 release, the movie hit hard as both an adoption drama and a window into life in Argentina under a murderous dictatorship, especially given the fact that Puenzo accepted the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar exactly 10 years to the day that the coup actually began in his country. In our current political climate, the now terrifyingly timely official story impacts us on a whole new level. Over 30 years old, the idea of being asked to believe a woman's accusations over her husband's protests, even if given their relationship in Alicia's case, Anna's words, her friend's words carry more weight, to the value of truth in a country flooded with governmental lies, spin, and propaganda, Quenzo's movie packs just as much topical firepower today as it did back then. Understanding there's no easy solution for the film's main characters, the writers of the official story are sensitive enough to know that to tie things up in a neat bow would undercut the ongoing incomprehensible suffering of those whose loved ones were taken by the government during the coup never to be heard from again and they pay tribute to the victims and their families by facing all of these complexities and making sure that their movie never just takes the easy shortcuts at all. The film itself was made in secret after members of the cast and crew received death threats, and that inspired the filmmakers to announce that the production had been canceled, only to continue on with the film as planned in secret. It's a brave work that uses the story of one family to shine the world spotlight on tens of thousands of others. While it does serve as an important historical document about the dirty war, in light of current events, it also plays like a cautionary tale of the dangers of authoritarianism at a time when facts are too easily just dismissed as fake. So if you are catching up with the movies that I'm recommending this week, this one might play really interestingly after Shattered Glass because both deal with journalism and fact and fiction and how important it is to be an accurately informed citizen, especially now more than ever. Recapping this week's recommendations, we started with Shattered Glass, which is now playing on Cinemax and wherever you rent film. Heartbreakers is on Hulu and Netflix. Trans-Siberian is on Prime, Roku, Vudu, Tubi, Popcorn Flicks, and Pluto. East Side Sushi is available on Vudu, YouTube, Cinemax, Prime, Hoopla, and Canopy. And the official story is now playing on Criterion Channel and Canopy. 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope these new movies appeal to you, or at least some of them did. I try to hit a variety of genres and topics and styles of filmmaking because we all have different tastes, and I know some might strike a chord with a few of you guys, and some will be adventurous and go for all of them. So regardless... I hope that I gave you a couple of good ideas of movies to check out, and I really hope that you all have a wonderful, safe, and happy week. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. I am Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd, and this is Watch With Jen.